So the last few weeks we've been looking at the life of David, um, and uh, we're going to focus on uh, David's uh, particular experience David had with King Saul this morning, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you've got a Bible, do flick that open now. That's um, page 296, uh, 1 Samuel 24. And it's, it's one of the most tense and yet strangely comedic moments um, in the Old Testament, certainly in the story of David. Um, and we'll actually read the Bible passage as we go through. Um, but it's, a, it's basically a fugitive story. And uh, in particular, it's that moment in all great fugitive stories when the hunter and the hunted have kind of ended up on top of each other. And by a twist of fate, the hunter is delivered into the hands of their supposed victim. Um, let me, uh, before we start reading it, let me just summarise the plot so far, um, at least those bits that are important for us. So Saul is basically a king who's gone bad, um, and God has taken away his uh, blessing uh, of his kingship, and Saul knows that his days are numbered, and he's been told this by uh, the prophet Samuel back in chapter 15. Meanwhile, David knows that he is going to be king. Um, does anyone else know? It doesn't seem like they do, really. Um, Saul knows that he's been usurped by one of his neighbours, as it says um, in chapter 15. But he, he, at this point, at least, initially, doesn't know uh, uh, that that's going to be David. Uh, and last week, uh, John told us about the story of David and Goliath, which is when David and Saul finally properly meet um, And in that story, of course, very famously, David conquers Goliath. And as John said, one of the key things about that story is that the story should have been about Saul. Saul should have been the one out there conquering Goliath. A king is supposed to lead their army into battle. That is the the way it's supposed to be in the ancient Near East. They're not supposed to stay at home. It's a little bit uh, like if you know Lord of the Rings. It's that that moment uh, in the third book when Aragorn, the true heir, leads the battle for Minas Tirith while uh, Denethor, the mere steward of Gondor, sits at home eating uh, tomatoes for memory. I don't know why it was tomatoes, but... It was in the film anyway. I'm not sure that the tomatoes were in the book. Um, But as the story unfolds from the story of David and Goliath, we find that Saul continues to allow David to fight his battles for him. And so we see that David is the acting king and Saul is already acting as a bit of a has-been. And of course people start to notice. Uh, And there's even a song that somebody starts to sing that says, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So of course, inevitably, Saul starts to get a little jealous and it starts to dawn on him finally that maybe he's kind of shot himself in the foot by giving David all this freedom to go and fight these battles for him he's given David the opportunity to rise in stature and popularity and actually he's the one that's going to take over the kingship so Saul then turns to the slightly more tricky task of getting rid of David. And he tries all sorts of schemes to get rid of David quietly without anyone knowing that that's what's happened. Um, and it becomes, they become more and more elaborate and more and more dangerous until finally David simply has to escape. And he becomes a fugitive hiding in the mountains. And Saul has just become this obsessive, calculated killer. 
I don't know if you've ever been looked at by a predator. Um, maybe at the zoo, maybe if you've uh, been to uh, uh, Africa or something. I've, I've had one or two moments when a lion just clocks me and looks at me. And it's an incredibly dehumanizing moment. You know that that lion is thinking, he's got one question in his mind, edible or not? So you stop being a human, you just become this substance, really, in front of them. A cold, calculated stare. Um, And that's how you need to think of Saul in this story. He has become cold and calculated. He cares about nothing but finding David and killing him because he's standing in the way of Saul's rule. And the Philistines, of course, throughout the story, are supposed to be the real enemy they just become this slightly annoying interruption that Saul has to go and occasionally deal with while he's you know, distracted from what his main purpose is, which to, is to defeat David. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 24. And do follow along with me, because that will be the uh, easiest way of telling when, when I stop reading the passage and start babbling on myself. So let's, uh, let's have a look at the first few verses. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So, picture the scene for a moment. Uh, David and his men are hiding in this cave. There's about 600 men with David, we know from previous chapters. Um, And of course, that is no match for the 3,000 that Saul is uh, hunting him uh, with. So inevitably, I suspect these guys are starting to lose hope. So they're in this cave. Maybe they're resting, uh, worn out from the escape job. It might be that they're just staying out of the way during daylight so they can try and travel at night. But either way, uh, as they are sat there, suddenly the majestic silhouette of seven-foot Saul, their hunter, appears in the mouth of the cave. What are the chances? Now, of course, at this point, what are they going to be thinking? Well, I would guess they're going to be thinking, we've been, we've been discovered. There must be an intruder. There must be somebody who's betrayed us to Saul. He's come to get us. It's all over. But then Saul hitches up his robe and he squats and an almighty raspberry sound echoes around the cavern walls um, and Saul starts sort of whistling to himself contentedly. Um, David's men's fear starts to turn to a sort of stifled laughter as they realise that this is just one almighty coincidence. Now the Hebrew here for relieve himself is, is just as euphemistic as, as it is in the English. The literal phrase would be he's, he's, he covered his feet. Um, so it really is like he went to the smallest room. Um, and actually this, uh, that's a phrase that only appears one other time in uh, the Old Testament in a story that would have uh, occurred a couple of generations earlier in the life of uh, the Israelites. And it's, that's in Judges 3. You can have a look at it later. It's a fairly gory graphic story. But it's, it's used of another evil king, uh, who, uh, that's the king Eglon of Moab, who is uh, confronted by uh, another saviour of Israel, Ehud, the judge, uh, in close proximity to the bathroom. 
And in that story, Ehud plunges his sword into Eglon and kills him. Maybe this story is ringing in the ears of David's men as they sit there stifling their laughter. And as their laughter starts to cease, it becomes a cold, calculated uh, planning. Their hunter, who's been bent on murdering them, has been handed right into their hands. He is in a position of some considerable vulnerability and doesn't even know it. They can finish things off here and now. The whole thing can be over. And Saul won't even know uh, what happened. It's, it's slightly tricky to understand uh, at the beginning of... Uh, actually, no, let's read one more verse. Verse 4. We will speed up with the, with the actual reading, I promise. But verse 4... This is what the men, as they start to realize the opportunity, this is what they say. The men said, I'm suspecting a whisper. They said, this is the day of the Lord. The Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So what the men say is slightly unusual. It's as far as there's actually, we haven't seen this. We haven't heard this, the Lord saying this, that God is going to uh, give uh, Saul into uh, David's hands. Now, it might be that they're kind of assuming it from all of the things that have been said. Um, it might also be, so not, not, not wanting to be too technical, but um, you can see there's a footnote that says that maybe it's that the Lord is, today the Lord is saying that he's delivering you him into your hands. The Hebrew tenses work slightly differently. It's quite possible that that's what's going on. But either way, David doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it as God having handed uh, Saul into his hands in the way that they think. So what is David going to do? Um, well, you can imagine the cinematography of this moment, can't you? If you imagine there's, there's Saul, headshot, um, and uh, he's just enjoying the view, a quiet moment on his own, as far as he is concerned. And then over his shoulder, there is slowly appearing a, a, a faint shadow of a human, and the human is holding a knife. And as the human moves forward, you see that it is David creeping slowly towards Saul. And you wait for the blood-curdling scream. But actually, all that happens is David kneels down ever so gently and manages to cut off the corner of his robe without him even knowing that it's happened. Now, what's he doing? Why would David do that? Well, on, on one hand, it's almost playful, isn't it? Um, you know, that's a, look what I can do. Um, on another hand, it's, it's also a sense of uh, this is great evidence for how close he came. There's also uh, arguably a third sort of dynamic here. Um, as, as you may know, in the ancient Near East, the robes you wore were extremely important for your whole identity, especially as a king. As a king, your whole identity was in the robes that you wore. For your robes to be damaged or to be torn was a challenge to your very identity. So it's almost as if this is David just giving a little jab at Saul and saying, the kingdom is not going to be yours for long and it's going to be me that's going to take it off you. So all of that is loaded into this little action of him taking uh, a corner off the robe. Let's read a couple more verses. Verse 5. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. 
He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So on one level, it would have been very reasonable for David to have killed Saul. Saul was oppressing not just him, but actually the whole nation of Israel. His days were numbered anyway, and surely the sooner they came to an end, the better it would be for everyone involved. And it did seem, doesn't it, that the men had it right. God had handed Saul into David's hands to do with as he would. And I think the story, the whole way, and with the judge's reference and everything, it's supposed to lead you towards the sense of inevitability, even of rightness, that David was going to dispatch Saul. But not only does David resist that temptation, because he doesn't actually see it that way, but he is racked with guilt for the little thing that he did to, for the implications of the actions he took. And so Saul leaves, blissfully unaware of how close he came. In a second, we're going to read the rest of the chapter. Um, But before we do, just another little snippet uh, of ancient Near East context that might be worth bearing in mind. Um, And that's the idea of what kingship would have meant in those days. Of course, it's hard to recapture uh, the sense of what a king really would have been to the Hebrew people. When when what comes to our mind is probably a combination of our Prime Minister David Cameron um, and dear old Queen Liz, you know, we we don't have a terribly awe-inspiring view of kingship. Whereas in, the, in, in actually in all the surrounding nations, kings were actually gods. They were viewed to actually be gods. And of course in Israel, that's not how it was. But in Israel, a king was the representative of God to the whole people. And he was also the representative of the people towards God. So they, he had an incredibly important spiritual role um, As as a little side note, when you think of the kingship of Jesus, therefore, um, that's not just to be understood in terms of, you know, us having to be bossed around by Jesus. But the idea there is partly that Jesus is your representative, that you stand behind him as he stands representing you before the Father. We'll come back to that idea. The point here is that A king wasn't just some sort of CEO figure, some sort of leader. He was spiritually highly significant. um, And his anointing was from God himself. So bear that in mind as we read the rest of the chapter, picking up verse 8, bottom of page 296. Uh, Saul has just left. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave, you in, gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he, not, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants. The word cut off there, by the way, is the same as the cutting off of the robe. So he's using that as an image there. You will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave this oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. There's lots that we could dig into in that section, and there might be things that are slightly confusing in there. But I want to just ask simply the question of how can, what can we uh, learn, what can we draw out from this passage? Um, there are a couple of things that we could draw out. Um, uh, the first, I think, would be the idea of this, the nature of obedience. It's the idea of not cutting moral corners uh, for the sake of the greater good. Now, of course, David knew Saul well enough to know that this was not going to be the end of the story by any stretch. Uh, If you see right at the very end of the story, we see that David, where does David actually go? David goes back up to the stronghold. David goes back to the cave. Why would David go back to the cave if he really trusted that this was the end of the story with Saul? No, he knows uh, that, uh, that this is not going to be the end of it. And actually we find within a chapter that Saul is back on the hunt. Saul is still determined to get rid of David. Um, and we find again Saul is delivered into David's hands. And again uh, David resists the temptation to dispatch him. God must have a different plan for transferring the kingdom to David. And David has to be willing to trust that. All he can do, of course, is remain faithful. All he can do is remain faithful to the commands of God. Now, eventually, chapter 31, finally Saul comes to a sticky end. He's losing the battle against the Philistines and he decides to take his own life, which he does. So that's how eventually we see the end of Saul. But the point here then is that In a Christian morality, the end never justifies the means. Um, I don't want to spend any more time on that idea because it's not in some ways the most distinctive idea in the passage. Um, In fact, the Old Testament is full of stories of people being tempted and often failing uh, in that temptation 
to do the thing that will most expediently move the story on as they think it needs to be moved on. Um, Sometimes we feel like we know where God's plans are supposed to go um, and we think we know the best way of getting there. And if we have to cut a few moral corners, so be it. In fact, the whole narrative tension of the Old Testament really is in that question of how is God going to fulfill his grand promises uh, from such a set of consistently unpromising circumstances? That's the question that sits over the whole Old Testament. Um, and it might be that that's what you need to think about, is how to be obedient amidst uh, the temptation to cut corners in what you perceive God's plan to be. And if that is your uh, priority, if that's what you need to think about, then feel free at this moment to just to let your mind drift off. You don't need to listen to another word I've said. Um, that's perfectly reasonable. That would be a perfectly good place to stop. Um, but I think that actually the, the, uh, the most important thing here for us, the, something that's slightly more distinctive, is the idea of what it means to see people as God sees them. Uh, I think this is, uh, we've seen this come up in the last two weeks. We heard it with John uh, in, the, in what John was preaching on. We also heard it uh, from what Rachel was preaching on. Um, and I think the particular sense here is How are we to see our enemies? How are we to see them as God sees them? It's as if David seems to see this triangle of relationships. He sees that Saul may do him good or may do him evil, but it was up to God to deal with Saul because Saul belongs to God. All David could do was honor God by honoring Saul in that relationship. Um, and of course, in the story, the main, this is the big distinction between them. We talked about Saul as that predator. When Saul looks at you, you become nothing, you become substance. When David looks at you, you are, you are a child of God. Uh, he sees you as your identity in God. Look at uh, verse 12. It's clear that, um, that David, this is not coming out of any sense of disillusioned uh, positive thinking about Saul. He knows who Saul is. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. I think it's so easy in our individualized culture uh, to imagine somehow that God is on our side, maybe at the expense of everyone else. I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but often I think that's the way we find ourselves thinking. In David's case, he knew he was the anointed king, and yet he was able to look at Saul with this humility that saw somebody of human value, somebody who was, at least for now, anointed over David. But for us, especially now that we live in the light of the cross, uh, we should see this dynamic even more clearly. The message of the cross really is that idea that no one lives in a way that fully honors God as they should except Jesus. And again, as I said, he is our representative. We get to stand with Jesus and be welcomed into his father-son love. We are all sinners saved by grace. Um, David is a foreshadow of Jesus. When Jesus looks at you, he looks with the love and compassion of uh, family, or at least family as it should be. 
So what does it mean for us to uh, see others around us as children of God, loved as much as we are, and in need of the same grace that we are? Well, of course, Jesus uh, talks about this stuff in the Sermon of the Mount. He just says very simply, love your enemies. And I think it's very easy to underapply that idea uh, because um, we, if you ask the question, who is my enemy? Well, David had a pretty obvious enemy in Saul, so we get that. Um, it might be that you have a relatively obvious enemy that you could bring to mind, even if it's just a, a problem colleague uh, or a, a noisy neighbor uh, or whatever it might be. But, but arguably, I think f- deeper down, an enemy is anyone whose agenda conflicts with my own. At, at that moment of agenda conflicting, they are, in a sense, uh, your enemy. And it's these regular, daily, daily, daily occurrences of those little agenda tensions Uh, interactions, that the model of David here, I think, is hardest to carry through. Um, To give you an an example of somebody who really is not my enemy, but was functioning this way in my mind, I remember a few years ago, I was trying to fundraise to start a charity, and I knew that my uh, vicar, who had had access to quite substantial pots of money for this kind of thing, was having, you know, a meeting at which quite significant decisions might be made. And I know that my instinct was to pray, God, make him understand that this thing is the best thing that's ever happened to the kingdom so that he will be, give me all the money that I need to save the world. You know, that's the way you start to think, isn't it? Um, but of course, the, the reality is that, that, that I had my agenda, he had his agenda, and what I needed to, to pray was that whatever our agendas, it would be God's agenda that won out. I needed to pray that he would be given wisdom to use that money rightly. And that if it was for me and for what I was trying to do, then great. And if it wasn't, that there'd be every blessing on whatever other ministry might uh, be set up. Um, And I think that the challenge for us starts with our prayer life. I had to pray for my vicar in that decision. As I said, he wasn't an enemy, but his agenda was in conflict with mine. Um, what does that mean about praying for a parking space or praying for uh, a seat on a train? Um, now, that might, that might be a reasonable prayer to pray sometimes, but I think very often it comes from a sense that our need is greater or at least more important than anyone else's. So imagine as you're running for the train tomorrow morning praying, God, may the people who most need the seats on that train get them and may I be humble enough to appreciate that that might not be me be a slightly odd prayer to be praying at that time in the morning but actually that's what we should be aiming for isn't it Um, something that I find useful in trying to combat this mentality for me is is I say the Lord's prayer over other people over those people uh, whose agendas might be in tension with mine Um, so maybe just as we finish take, take a moment to think about the week ahead Think about who you are going to be interacting with, whose agendas might be in conflict with yours, who might be after something else than what you're after. Think of your boss or your colleagues or a client, your children or your spouse, the customer services agent at British Gas, 
Who knows? And maybe each morning this week, uh, try and get into this habit of saying, Father of each of them, uh, hallowed be your name. May, may, in other words, may your name be revered uh, in their life. May it be revered as holy through their actions. May your kingdom come through my interaction with them and through all that they do. May your will be done in their lives as well as mine. So uh, we're going to take a moment just to be quiet as we finish. Um, And maybe capture in your mind that image of David prostrate before somebody who was genuinely his enemy. Think of that person whose agenda might be in conflict with yours. And maybe just say those few lines from the Lord's Prayer over them in the silence. Father, I pray that you would give us David's humility and obedience this week, that you would enable us to see how much you love and value all of the people that we interact with, um, and that we would seek your kingdom in, in those interactions. In your name, amen.